This Dharma talk by Joan Sutherland is the second in a series of two titled Bhagavad Gita. It was given at Cerro Gordo Temple in Santa Fe, New Mexico on February 27, 2009. Last week I started a series of talks on the Mahabharata, the great epic poem of ancient India, um, which is, um, has been called the autobiography of the human race. And it's a really long poem, eight times as long as the Iliad and the Odyssey combined, and has everything in it. It really is a sort of autobiography. And in particular, we're focusing on one section, which is called the Bhagavad Gita, which many of you are probably familiar with. <clears throat> and in the midst of this roiling, teeming, um, energy-filled autobiography, uh, there's this one section, which is a kind of hymn or praise song. In the midst of life, this, this hymn rises up, this praise song for the largeness of things and the beauty of things even in times of great difficulty. So that's the Bhagavad Gita. And last week we ta- we're pick- just picking up a couple of themes in it. Last week we talked about the theme of renunciation. Uh, there was the, the Bhagavad Gita was coming into written form, coming into a kind of fixed form around the same time that the Buddhist teachings were going from being oral teachings into written forms. They were in their turn becoming fixed as well. And the Gita and the Mahabharata as a whole and the early Buddhist writings are all looking at many of the same questions and sometimes coming to similar conclusions and sometimes coming to quite different ones. What's um, so interesting in, in looking back at them is how those questions are still our questions today. And I'll talk about that a little bit later about um, in terms of um, conflict and suffering. They had that question then, we have that question now. So it, at, at this time, which is a really kind of pivotal, pivotal time, one of the things that was happening was that something like renunciation, which had meant what you did or didn't do, moved from the things you did or didn't do into a kind of internal event, something happening in your own heart-mind. So a renunciate had always met someone who gave up family life or gave up all their possessions and became a homeless, wandering, holy person or something like that. It had to do with your activity and conduct a lot. And in the, in the Gita, Renunciation takes on this inner meaning, which is giving up the fruits of your actions. We would say giving up attachment to outcome. So all of a sudden, renunciation was about acting, which we have to do, and it recognizes that we do, but we renounce a need for a certain outcome. We act for the act itself, and then we let it go. So the Gita says um, about that, you have a right to your actions, but never to your actions' fruits. Act for action's sake, and do not be attached to inaction. So it's not a matter of therefore be passive and don't do anything. Self-possessed, resolute, act without any thought of results, open to success or failure. 
uh, or as the Tao Te Ching in its typically succinct way says, do your work, then step back, the only path to serenity. So um, that's where we left it last week with Gandhi, who wrote an essay on the Gita saying, renunciation is not attained by an intellectual feat. It is attainable only by a constant heart churn. So I want to talk a little bit about that heart churn tonight. In the Gita, when it talks about the way to give up attachment to the fruits of your action, it says that one way you can do that is to make um, every, perform every action as though it's an act of worship. So the Gita says, this is Krishna speaking to Arjuna, the Krishna, the Indian god. The whole world becomes a slave to its own activity, Arjuna. If you want to be truly free, perform all actions as worship. And then it goes on in another place to kind of talk about what all actions as worship means. And this is in a theistic context. This is a, you know, this is a religion that, that believes in God. But it's really easy to make any kind of substitution you want for God, um, Buddha nature, or the vastness, or whatever you call that thing, the presence of which you feel awe. So here is all actions as worship. God is the offering. God is the offered, poured out by God. God is attained by all those who see God in every action. So, um, in the same way that renunciation um, became an inner event, and so we could talk, they could talk about it in terms of, of um, becoming an act of worship. The Buddha also had a similarly really revolutionary understanding of what sacrifice meant. In, in that time, the streets of the towns literally ran red with the blood of sacrificed animals. There were animals just being slaughtered all the time, everywhere. And it was just an, a, a normal part of daily life. So again, the sense of sacrifice as being this outer event, you actually kill something and offer it up. And, um, and the Buddha completely changed the idea of what sacrifice meant. He said that, um, that what you sacrifice is your delusions. What you sacrifice are the habitual patterns of action that cause you to be separated from life. You sacrifice your inattention. You sacrifice your being caught up in your passions. Um, you sacrifice... Uh, aggression and ignorance and all those things that cause pain to you and to others around you. And when you let all that go, that's the thing that gets its neck cut, not some poor fellow creature. When you let all that go, then, then what is left is a fidelity to the moment, which we call mindfulness or you know awareness or attention attending to caring about all of those kinds of things is a, is is the fidelity to the moment that is the truest sacrifice and um, that's the worship the worship is that attention that mindfulness that caring about things
in a way, the old sense of sacrifice, that it meant literally killing something or hurting something, um, was a kind of spell in the, in the culture that the Buddha was trying to break. And I want to um, talk a little bit about that because it's a spell that I think is uh, still resonant for us. It's one that we can still uh, find ourselves under. So in the, in the Gita, uh, there's a part when Krishna, who has been Arjuna's charioteer, appearing in human form, um, Arjuna says, show me your godlike quality. Show me what you really look like. And, and uh, Krishna says, are you sure? And Arjuna says, yeah. So he appears to him in his um, sort of vast cosmic uh, form. And this is how Krishna, uh, this is how Arjuna describes what he's, how he sees Krishna. And this moment is happening right before a great battle. Um, Ar- Arjuna and his family and their followers are about to fight their cousins and their followers. So it's a, a family battle, very painful to Arjuna. And he's not sure he can go through with it. So he asks Krishna to drive him in his chariot out to the space between the two armies before the war starts. So there's this kind of blessed moment, you know, when maybe it's not going to happen or something, but there are, there are possibilities. There's still things that could happen other than complete slaughter. And this conversation happens within that blessed moment. But then um, Krishna takes his cosmic form and uh, the names that you'll hear in this are all names of the warriors who are involved in this battle. All Dhritarashtra's men and all those multitudes of kings, Bhishma, Drona, Karna, with all our warriors behind them, are rushing headlong into your hideous, gaping, knife-fanged jaws. I see them with skulls crushed, their raw flesh stuck to your teeth. As the rivers and many torrents rush toward the ocean, all these warriors are pouring down into your blazing mouths. As moths rush into a flame and are burned in an instant, all beings plunge down your gullet and instantly are consumed. You gulp down all worlds, everywhere swallowing them in your flames and your rays. You, Lord, fill all the universe with dreadful brilliance. Who are you in this terrifying form? Have mercy, Lord. Grant me even a glimmer of understanding to prop up my staggering mind. And Krishna then says the line that has been made famous because it's what Robert Oppenheimer said when the first atomic bomb blast happened. I am death, shatterer of worlds, annihilating all things. And then um, he goes on to say this really quite chilling thing. He says this to Arjuna. With or without you, these warriors in their facing armies will die. Therefore, stand up, win glory, conquer the enemy, rule. Already I have struck them down. You are just my instrument, Arjuna. Drona, Bhishma, Jayadratha, Karna, and the other great heroes have already been killed by me. Fight without hesitation. Kill them. So that's a pretty strong spell. And it's a spell that we haven't put behind us, you know, that we still grapple with every day in the world now. And that is the spell that, um, that I think, think um, the Buddha was trying to break. 
And um, he could only do it by a complete renunciation. He could only do it by everybody turning their backs and walking off into the forest together. In that time and place, with that intensity of feeling, there was he could find no way to navigate through that, to negotiate with that. It was simply a matter of walking away from it. And um, one of the things that's quite interesting to me is that even though Arjuna is under this spell, right? He's right inside this. He's a warrior. He's a kshatriya. He's, that's his job to make war. So he's completely in the spell, but he can't stand to look at it. And when he sees Krishna in this form, he begs Krishna to go back in the box. You know, go, go back to being my charioteer. I can't bear this. And that also seems to me to have great resonance for us again in this moment that. We're aware somehow of this, that horrible vision of um, the destruction that's happening in the world in some ways, and we can't bear to look at it. We don't look at it a lot. Um, we know it's there, but in some ways, we don't really look at the cost of our actions, or we hide them from ourselves a lot. So, at the end of this, uh, conversation that Krishna and Arjuna have, Arjuna is convinced that he will go to war. And so there has been this pause or reprieve, a moment of reprieve in the story. But after this sort of transcendent conversation, the very next thing, the very next paragraph comes. Then, seeing that Arjuna again held up his bow and arrows, the great warriors again roared their approval. The Pandavas and their followers cheerfully and gallantly blew their conch shells. Kettle drums, hand drums, cymbals, and cow horns were sounded in unison, and the noise was tremendous. Gods, Gandharvas, ancestors, hosts of Sivas, and Charanyas assembled to watch. The lordly seers, placing Indra, god of a hundred sacrifices, at their head, gathered there to watch the great holocaust. Is that not one of the most sorrowful passages in literature? There's been this moment, you know, this moment when things got really big and spacious and serene and real, and instantly the waters close over it and everybody's cheering and roaring and stamping and wanting to go. And again, I think that that's something that is familiar to us these days, how quickly an opening, a sense of that spaciousness and the largeness of things can just get eaten up and rolled right over. So you can really understand the Buddha's no. You can really understand the Buddha saying, there's, there's no way to fix this, there's no way to reform this. We just absolutely have to, to turn our backs on it. And then what happened as the Dharma um, evolved and moved to other countries, a third thing happened. A, a lot of this was um, what happened when it went to China, which is our root tradition. Um, the Chinese looked at it and they said, there's got to be a third alternative. There's got to be something other than either sounding the cymbals and, and blowing the conch shells and being all for it and turning your back on it and walking away and it's still happening, right, even though you've walked away. So, um, the Chinese uh, third way comes in 
things like this from the Tao Te Ching, which was a Chinese classic written at about the same time as, as, these are, as the um, Bhagavad Gita. In the Tao Te Ching it says, weapons are the tools of fear. A decent person will avoid them, except in the direst necessity, and if compelled, will use them only with the utmost restraint. Peace is the highest value. If the peace has been shattered, how can he, how can he be content? His enemies are not demons, but human beings like himself. He doesn't wish them personal harm, nor does he rejoice in victory. How could he rejoice in victory and delight in the slaughter of people? He enters a battle gravely, with sorrow and with great compassion, as if he were attending a funeral. And that spirit carried on in East Asian Buddhism, so that you get um, a story I've, I've told in the past about Tokimune, who was the regent in Japan at the time of the Mongol invasion. And so he was in charge of defending Japan against the so far completely unstoppable Mongol army. And he did succeed in stopping them with a little help from the kamikaze, the divine wind that came up and destroyed the Mongol fleet in the harbor. But the thing that is so moving to me about Tokimune's story is that when the war was over and he had won, the very first thing he did was build a memorial to the dead of both sides. And that seems to me to be exactly in the spirit of the Tao Te Ching, entering a battle gravely with sorrow and great compassion, as if he were attending a funeral. And that seems to me to be um, a new and important spirit that came in, into Buddhism at that time. Um, one of our own wild Buddhists, although we really didn't know it, was Walt Whitman, who was um, profoundly affected by the Civil War and worked in the hospitals with attending to the wounded and dying Union Army soldiers. And in one of his poems, he says exactly the same thing. He says, my enemy is dead. A person as sacred as myself is dead. So I think we should have that on billboards <laughs> and street corners. Um, my enemy is dead. A person as sacred as myself is dead. It'd be great if that were the ticker running under CNN. <laughs> Just another perspective. Um, let's see how we do it. Okay, so I don't want to leave it there, so I want to talk a little bit about um, joy. Because the, if, if that was sorrow, yeah, if that was clearly sorrow, the Gita also addresses um, sorrow and joy and how to, um, how to come to joy even in the midst of, of all of this. Um, so it says in one place, and um, yoga here doesn't just refer to the, 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 what we think of as physical yoga. Yoga is a way, a practice, a discipline, um, the, whatever it is you're, you're doing, your spiritual discipline. So it says, this is true yoga, the unbinding of the bonds of sorrow. Practice this yoga with determination and with a courageous heart. It's also something that we can read on billboards. This is true yoga, the unbinding of the bonds of sorrow. Practice this yoga with determination and with a courageous heart. Now, that doesn't mean that if you do this, you will never feel sorrow again. That's not at all a promise. 
What it means is that that sorrowing, that suffering, that attitude of melancholy won't any longer be your fundamental orientation towards life. It won't be the base note anymore under everything. And if you stop and think for a minute, in, in this time when we're so aware of so much stuff that's happening around the world, it's quite easy to have a sort of base note of sorrow, a base note of um, fear and pain and um, regret about what's happening. So when the Gita talks, I think the language is very precise. It says you're unbinding the bonds of sorrow. Not that you're eliminating sorrow, not that you wouldn't be moved in the same way by the pains and sufferings of the world, but that you would not in the same way be bound by them. It wouldn't be the base note, always there, underneath everything. Um, Neruda has a, a, a stanza in one of his poems like a knife that's, that's exactly this point. Neruda said, If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Is that an amazing stanza? If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. So the Gita is saying there is a way to let that huge silence interrupt the sorrow. There is a way to feel in any moment the bigness of things, the spaciousness of things, the the deep serenity of things that opens up for a moment before the war starts when Arjuna and Krishna talk. Any moment has that potential. There's that trap door under any moment into through which we can fall into the largeness and spaciousness and serenity of things. Um, it goes on to talk a little bit about what that's like, and I think because of time, I'll save that until later, so you have to come back to find out how to open the tractor. But just a couple of things to close. It says in one place, uh, the undisciplined have no wisdom, no one-pointed concentration. With no concentration, no peace. With no peace, where can joy be? So there's the promise of joy there. You know, that's the explicit promise of joy. And it goes back to when it talks about uh, concentration. Without concentration, there's no peace. That concentration is um, each, act, each act as worship. It's the attention, the mindfulness of, of, of acting each time uh, as worship. That's that concentration. And from that comes a kind of peace. And from that peace comes this joy which is not happiness. It's not like, you know, I used to feel bad, but now I feel good. It's a a joy that is a different base note in the same way that that sorrow can be a base note. This joy can be a base note underneath everything, um, not conditioned by circumstances. 
that joy is itself so big and so capacious and so strong that it can hold our rising and falling sorrows and difficulties and pains and fears. It can hold all of it and not be extinguished by any of it. So that becomes the new base note. Um, So, in closing, one last verse from the Gita. The person whom desires enter as rivers flow into the sea, filled yet always unmoving, that person finds perfect peace. So it's not a matter of turning away from our heart minds, from our thoughts and feelings, from things that happen in the world. Um, It's a matter of developing this joy that is strong enough to let all of that flow in, like the rivers flowing into the sea, to accept all of that and not be extinguished by it. The person whom desires enter as rivers flow into the sea, filled yet always unmoving, that person finds perfect peace. So, that's the, that's the promise of the Gita and in many ways the promise of this practice as well, that it is possible to develop a base note, a grounding, a bedrock of that kind of unshakable joy that it doesn't need to be protected from anything, that can t- allow everything into itself and remain. This talk is offered as a benefit for members of Awakened Life. If you would like to become a member or give Donna to John Sutherland, please visit awakenedlife.org.